Alright, this is going to be session 12, Jesus Sacrificed. There is no uh, mystery here. We're going to be looking at the crucifixion. Um, we're going to look at it from Mark's perspective, which is the perspective of Peter. As we look at this, it's not very unique. Um, but what we want to remember is that Peter and Mark wrote this gospel um, not long after all this took place. This is the first gospel that was written. So he's going to set the base for it. Now we did John a year or so ago. And John was the last gospel written. And that's one of the reasons why John is so different than the other three. John was writing to fill in that which the other three writers did not record for us. But Mark is not, Peter's, Peter's not worried because there is nothing to compare it to. Uh, being the first one written. So this is going to be very basic. It's going to be very plain. He's writing to Roman people in Rome that know nothing of Palestine. They know nothing of Israel. They don't know anything of the Jews except by rumor. And so he's not gotten into a lot of the teachings that Jesus had because they weren't pertinent to them. We saw that he's dealt a lot with all the action, the miracles and stuff, but not a lot of the teaching but this is going to tie it all together as we look at it. The whole purpose, the whole point, the sacrifice that Jesus is willing to make. We saw that last week as he was in the garden. And we see the submission of Christ to the will of the Father. Now we see how it plays out. This is what it was all about. So session 12, Jesus' sacrifice will be in Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at um, verses 24 to 39. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's the whole point. That's why he came. That was his purpose. That was his mission. That was his goal, was to be crucified in this manner. Which is really, really, really... Can I say really one more time? <laughs> Bizarre. Because the normal person's objective in life is to save one's life. Protection of self. We consider the person a great hero who runs into the burning building. They're lauded and applauded. We give the Congressional Medal of Honor to guys who run towards the bullets to bring back the guys that have been mowed down in battle as the highest honor. And, we, and that comes with all sorts of stuff to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. You don't really win it. It's acknowledged that you made such great sacrifice to yourself. Because the normal state of life is to protect life, particularly your own. And as we come to this passage, as we saw last week, Jesus was not protecting his life. He wasn't out to save himself. He didn't want to die. But that was the purpose. And as he submitted to the Father's will in the garden and was taken, 
off to be tried and all that, which we're not going to look at. Mark doesn't cover it very well. Matthew is much more adept at covering the trials and, and all that because they're looking at Jesus as the Jewish king. It becomes very important. What we see, though, is as he's crucified, the response of all the people. Now, let's remember, what day, by Jewish standards, was Jesus crucified? Wednesday? It was Wednesday. No, it wasn't Friday. Yeah, it wasn't Friday. It was Wednesday. And as we remember... Sunday, what happened? Nothing. No? The tomb was empty. No, not the, not the, pre, the previous oh, the Sunday. Pre oh, that was Palm the triumphal Go back the other direction. Oh, yeah. Triumphal entry. It, it, Palm Sunday. Triumphal entry. What was going on? Everybody loved Jesus. Everybody loved him. They're crying out, Hosanna See? in the highest. They're calling him the king of the Jews. That's Sunday. Thousands upon thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who were in town for the Passover, lining the streets, putting down the palm branches and cloaks, cheering as Jesus rides in. The hoopla that went with that, right? That's Sunday. Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday morning, they're passing the cross, throwing stones, mocking him. It's, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's three days. We've gone from yay to ooh, right? And what are the people looking for? That's what we're going to see today. I'll tell you what they were looking for. People were looking for a Superman exhibition of power out of Jesus as he hung on the cross. That's what they're looking for. I want you to keep that firmly in the back of your mind as we look at the passage. People were expecting some Superman exhibition of Jesus' power because they all know what he's been doing for the last three years. But it hasn't been playing off. So, as we look at a little background, uh, this was a handout I gave you guys when we were doing John. Mm -hmm. If anybody is interested in it, let me know. I can get you a copy. Um, but this is the Jewish day because there's some issues. There are some issues <clears throat> with... Uh, Timing. And Mark records for us that Jesus was hung on the cross at the third hour. Third hour. So here's the Jewish day. Sunrise is about 6 a.m. It's also the end of the fourth watch. So then the first hour is 7 o'clock. 8 o'clock is the second hour. Third hour, 9 o'clock in the morning. So Mark is going to tell us that Jesus was taken to be crucified at the third hour. And then they're going to tell us that at the sixth hour, which would be noon, 
Darkness covered the land until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus dies. Which, as we look at this, the eleventh hour is five o'clock, and night begins at six p.m. And it starts the next day. So the Sabbath is going to happen at six. Remember from last week. That means they've got three hours. So the ninth hour, Jesus dies. The guards have to certify that he's dead. They've got to get him off the cross. Joseph of Arimathea has gone, goes and gets permission to bury the body. They come back. They're going to wrap it up. They've got to carry it to wherever the tomb is. I don't know how far away it is. Um, and get him in the tomb, get the door sealed, put the seal on it from the Roman, uh, from Pilate and guards stationed there and get home before the 6 o'clock hour, which is when Passover, or not Passover, um, Sabbath starts. All right? So three hours is not, I mean, be, that's not a lot of time. But that's, that, that's the recording that we get from Mark. We're going to look at that here in a minute. The problem is, is that John tells us that the trial started at the sixth hour. Now, if I look at the sixth hour, it would be, or yeah, the sixth hour, that would be noon. How is that possible? John tells us, who writes later, well, if you study your scripture at all, that's a, one of those conflicts that uh, seculars love to point to, but it's not really an issue. First of all, Mark, being written by Peter, Peter's Jewish, isn't he? Peter is a fisherman from Galilee. Um, he writes this very early, and he writes it from a Jewish perspective. He's writing to Romans, but he's not, he's not a Roman. And so he uses this calendar. The Romans, the Roman people did not use the same clock that the Jews did. Which John, who was very was much older, had lived in Greek cities and was with the Greeks and writing to the Greeks, um, was used to the Roman time. Roman time is where we get our modern clock. It starts at midnight. That's the first hour. So everything shifts up. So John tells us that the trial started at the sixth hour which we would say is noon, but if we start at midnight, what time would be the trial? Six in the morning, which we know that that was when Mark said the trial started, and three hours later, Jesus is hung on the cross, so it all lines up. We've got to understand perspective. By the time John writes his gospel, the Roman figure of time was normal because Israel was destroyed. Remember, when John writes it, he's over 100 years old. It's somewhere around 90 to 100 AD when John writes his gospel. Jerusalem and the Israelites are destroyed in 70 AD. They're gone. They don't exist as a nation, a people, anything. They've been <laughs> squatted. Jerusalem was destroyed. Masada fell. All those people were dead. All the zealots were killed and all that. 
John, why would John use a system of time that nobody's going to re that nobody remembers? It's not pertinent anymore. By probably thirty years, so he uses the Roman standard, which is what most of the rest of the world had started using. But Mark is written long before that, and so we, we have to coordinate it. These are things you have to think about when you're when you're dealing with scholarship and especially the higher criticism of the seculars out there. Uh, these become big questions, and people's faith is is totally trampled. But it's easily dealt with um, when we look at the authors, when they wrote, who they were writing to, and why. So, are there any questions as we come to this? And yeah, I occasionally do get questions about this stuff. <laughs> All right, so that's our background. So we're looking at this. We're looking at the third hour, <clears throat> the sixth hour, and the ninth hour as we look at this as being important. All right, let's uh, roll upon. There we go. So Mark chapter 15, verses 24 through 27. Somebody read that for us. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. It's interesting. The robbers, who knows who, what their names are? No, he's the one they let go. He was the one that he was supposed to be crucified that they flipped. It is interesting. The early church actually recorded the names of who the robbers were so that we even have the detail of who was crucified that day. People say that all oh, the Bible's full of errors and that it's been changed and all this. These guys in the early days knew that they would need to prove this stuff, and so they recorded it. Uh, the one was Zothan, and I can't pronounce the other one. Um, <laughs> it's like Chamomith. Um, but there, that, those are, it, it's not just tradition. I mean, yes, it's church tradition, but that's, the records record this sort of thing, which is interesting. We know who they were, so these are just not two nameless robbers, two nameless thieves hanging on cro the crosses, uh, we know who they are. What a week! It's uh, three days Jesus has been in Jerusalem. A week in Jerusalem, and he's gone from the most important person to the most despised person in just days. As Jesus is crucified, we see some things happening here. They're playing craps for his clothing. They're rolling dice. Oh, I win his, I win his outer garment. Oh, you want his, uh, his sandals. And they're, 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 they're dicing for his stuff, which was predicted in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. now, I'm not telling you anything you didn't know, but we look at this, and I want you to let that sink in. In Psalms, in Isaiah, they wrote hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, said that they would play craps for his clothing. 
Now, we all make fun of the psychic hotline and all those things, right? How do they not know? Why don't they win the lottery? Why do the psychics not win the lottery? How do they, you know, you, you, if you call, ever call them, they want to know who you are. How do you not know? You're a psychic, right? We make fun because if you had premonitions, if you knew what was going to happen, you know, whatever it was, and then you get the whatever it is, and it's like, you're going to meet somebody. Well, why, how do you not know who it is? There's like no detail. You ever notice that? All those, all those things. Well, I can see a dark place or, or this or that. And they, they've got all this great fluffy language, but none of it tells you anything useful. Scripture does not predict the future that way, does it? Nope. They will play craps for his clothes while he hangs on a cross. Can you be more specific? Not without telling you who wins, right? Yeah. I think we, we, we get jaded as Christians. We read it. We know it, especially as we're coming into the um, Easter season. You know, yeah, they did this, and we brush off. But how important is that? And what a lot of people don't realize is crucifixion wasn't known at the time they were, it was prophesied. That's not true. Isn't it? No, they were crucifying people. Oh, okay. I had heard The Romans thing. weren't even the biggest uh, crucifiers. The Assyrians oh. were. Oh, okay. The Assyrians were brutal. They would line the highways with them. Learned so they would go in and conquer a town. Yeah, no. Crucifixion was, uh, yeah, it, it predates the Romans. The Romans made it famous by crucifying Jesus. Um, but yeah, the Assyrians were were well known. There, it was absolutely brutal what they would do. Did I see a hand somewhere? No. I think it was a prophecy for the Jews to kind of give them a heads up. This is what you can look for, and when you see this, you know this is the Messiah. It's like all kinds of hints for yeah the people of the day who to recognize that God was sending. And they ignored it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in our day and age, it's still important because people say, well, it's just an old book. You know, it can't be true. It can't be factual. But here we are. We, we've got predictions that are clearly, oh, well, somebody filled that in later. <laughs> that, that's what they'll tell you. No, that, that's what they'll tell you. Critical scholarship will tell you that because of the way they were written, not by a person, Mark didn't write it, that it was collected stories and somebody put it together somewhere maybe a thousand years ago. They, they wrote it all down and put it together and attributed so they just made it all line up. Well, that's a heck of a job to start with. And the fact that they all agree and the fact that we have found older manuscripts makes that a little uh, skeptical. Um, but these details are important as we look at it. They played craps for his clothes. The second major thing that they did is the announcement, King of the Jews. Now this, Mark doesn't, I mean, we just read it, um, that, they, that there was a sign over him. Mark doesn't recall, record how angry the high priests and all of them were over this. They were outraged. They, they tried to get Pilate to take the sign down. Mark doesn't record that, but here it is. This is a government document. Do we understand that? If Pilate had this sign put up over Jesus' head, 
announcement from the government that this is the king of the Jews. Imagine that. Do you understand the significance of that? Pilate acknowledges who Jesus is. Makes you credible. Exactly. Now we've got credible. This is credible. I mean, this would be like Biden coming out and, and, and claiming whatever he wants to claim. It'd be it'd be credible. Everybody, the government said so. Maybe. Well, but that's. I mean, thinking, I'm not going there. But this is this is an entity that should know. Like, like telling us, like, Area 51 is real. There are really aliens. Sure. <laughs> if you had a high government official come out and say that, the Department Secretary of the Defense came out and said that it was all real, we, we'd sit up and pay attention, wouldn't we? <laughs> now, we'd still probably be a little skeptical in the back of our minds, but this is, uh, is going to change the textbooks. That's what it's going to do. Announcing the king of the Jews is incredibly important because the whole world, everybody passing this, is seeing and reading it, and they're going to spread this information everywhere. Remember, Monday or Sunday, all the people that were there that had come to town cheering that he was the king of the Jews and all that. Now they're crucifying him, and the government's saying, yes, this was the king of the Jews. That's why we're crucifying him. They're all there because of the holiday. They're going to go away and know that there was a guy. And spread it. The announcement will go out into the world. And as the disciples show up and start begin proclaiming that no, no, he rose from the dead. And all that. But this is the beginning. The acknowledgement here. And then finally, he's crucified with true guilty people on either side, which points right back to the Old Testament. And we see again, this was predicted by Isaiah, that this would happen. Here it is. It's recorded for us. We even know their names. We know their crimes. They were guilty of, of being thieves, insurrectionists. They're crucified with him. So then did the robbers hear of this then? Hear you know what? what? He, that Jesus was crucified with two robbers. Where the one acknowledged him as Jesus. You know what I mean? Like did did they read this before? Did they know that? Oh they no, I doubt they read it before. I mean, we don't know. We don't know whether they're Jewish or not. Oh, okay. We don't know. We don't know a whole lot about them. We do know their names. We know their crimes. Uh, I mean, my guess is is they're thieves. They probably were not religious. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I doubt they cared or remembered or anything. But all of this, it, it all comes together. I mean, we read over it. We know the basic of the story, and we focus on the fact that Jesus is crucified. But all the things that are surrounding it are so important because they all point to something, which is going to be his resurrection and then the sending us out into the world. Comment, question. <clears throat> basic, but we often forget it. All right, let's move along. 
Mark 15, 28 through 32. And those who pass. 28 or you want 29? No, nope, I want 28. It's a 32. There's no oh, there's no oh, I'm sure one of you in here has got a 28. No. Come on. I have it in a footnote. Yeah. No, I'm not interested in the footnote. None of you are reading from the King James? George. I can get it. What's 28 say? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said he was numbered with the transgressors. Thank you. All right, now somebody can read 29 through the <laughs> <laughs> Trick And those who passed by derided him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All right, we're going to take a small detour uh, to deal with this issue. Most of you are reading from the ESV, I'm assuming. Yep. NIV. The NIV. NASB. Those who are reading from the King James or any of its um, derivatives, there are several other versions that are based on the King James, have a verse 28. Now, why is that? Why is why are we missing verses? This is this is concerning for many people. And again, the secular critics love to point at this that our Bibles aren't the same. Well, it's simple. The King James version of the Bible is based on the Masoretic texts. The who? The Masoretic texts. There it's a set of manuscripts that go all the way back to Jerome. Those of you who don't know who Jerome was, is that he was a priest, um, and this is not long after the first century. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. Is that the Vulgate? Yeah, right. That's the Vulgate. LXX. Anytime you see the LXX, that's the Vulgate. Um, it's the Latin translation. Um, or no, that's the Septuagint. Never mind. Forget that. The... Uh, <laughs> that's the Greek. Yeah, that's the Greek Old Testament. The Latin Vulgate was translated from a, a specific group of texts, and they were nothing changed. So as you go through the centuries, everybody had to read it in Latin. As we come out of the Dark Ages, they decided that uh, that people should be able to read the Bible in their own language. That was one of the things that Martin Luther argued for, which he wanted it in German, because he was German. Well, as we fast forward, the English wanted an English version, and the only thing available, because most people at that point did not know Latin, or Hebrew, or Greek. And so they, scholars at the time, could read some Latin. They took what Jerome had translated it and made it into English. And there was the Chain Bible, and there was the Bishop's Bible, and the Geneva Bible. There, there were all these Bibles, and, they, and it caused a lot of infighting, particularly in England, about which one was better. And so King James had them kind of settle the argument by making 
bringing all these guys together and making one translated, it became the King James Bible. But it's all based on what Jerome did in Latin, which he wrote, brought out of these texts. And those texts are the Masoretic texts. What has happened since the days of King James, what is it, 1611? Yeah. yeah. So 1611, well, archaeologists have been combing the Middle East for the last century, and they have found a whole lot of copies of the Bible. Um, the most famous being the Dead Sea, Scrolls. Dead sea Scrolls. And what they have found, now those are the Old Testament, but the New Testament, um, they found is that uh, verse 28 does not exist in the oldest copies, which the oldest copies of the New Testament are about 100 years from when they would have been written. So 100 years later than when they were originally written down. So Mark writes this with Peter, and 100 years later we have a copy of the book of Mark, and it doesn't have this verse in here. Um, it is believed that it was added as a footnote, and somewhere along the way in the copying, it got added to the text. It doesn't change the meaning of anything. It doesn't um, adjust, you know, there's no theological issues with it. It's just not there. It's true. Uh, verse 28 is true. They did, uh, he was, but it was just a footnote. Like, you know, and I, I like to write in my Bible. I usually draw little lines mm -hmm. and write stuff that, well, when you do it. Now, I had an archaeology class many years ago uh, in grad school. We were required to make a copy of the Book of Mark in Latin. We were using a text that was from 600 AD. So it was an old copy, and it was in Latin with the fancy script. And we had to sit in a little room with candles. <laughs> and we had to do it by candlelight. We actually had to line the paper and everything. It was a class project. And um, the, because it was from 600 AD, uh, they had not invented glasses yet. So I had to not wear my glasses as we translate, or we weren't translating it, we were just copying the text. And the goal was to get it word for word perfect. We had to check the first word at the top of the page and the last word at the bottom of the page. And every line, the first word of every line with the last word of every line, they had to match perfectly. So if you wrote too fat, wow. uh, you would have to tear up the page and start again because there's no erasers. We had to do it with ink and quill. Um, it was painstaking, and because it wasn't done just like in scriptoriums, it was done by a team, not one person. We have different handwriting, yeah. different style of lettering. Um, yeah, it was very complicated, and I have learned to appreciate the text that we have. The fact that we have texts and they all agree is ridiculously phenomenal because of the difficulty of doing this. But that's what happened. Somewhere, somebody made a note in a margin, and it just got incorporated into the text. And so we get verse 28. And so as we look at this, the different, the newer translations, which you don't use the Masoretic texts, they use the older texts, dropped out verse 28, but we leave the space. So there's no, you go 27 to 29. <laughs> Any questions? This is more than you probably ever wanted to know, right? 
But this is where textual criticism comes in. That scholars, particularly secular, look at this and go, well, of course it's missing because this isn't that. But the originals agree. The problem is, is that our translations of the originals uh, got messed up, and we assume it. I don't assume that my ESV is uh, accurate. It's just a translation of a translation. It's also why people who argue for King James only, <laughs> there, there, there's some issues with that, this being one of them, because it's a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. It's good. If you like it, great, use it. But it isn't like holy, you know, whatever. There are people that, that think that it's actually more accurate than the original Greek and Hebrew. The King James only people get pretty uh, uh, Yeah, I, I, I've had the debate <laughs> with, with the... I had a guy, I'm like, well, let's just agree because we've all been to Greek and we've all been to Hebrew class. Let's just use that. And they're like, yeah, but that isn't inspired by God. Only the King James Version's inspired by God. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you smoking? Dude, we got a theological <laughs> issue at this point. Yeah. Um, so anyway, question on verse 28 not being there. Yeah. Again, this is important. We miss all, we skip over this. How many of you ever knew that that, that was there? You've all read this? Yeah. <laughs> one of you? One of you do? That's pretty good. Most people don't. You just read right past it. Wait, where's verse 28? Oh, I didn't see it. I was just reading the story, and we know the story, and we get so caught up. I don't look at the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> they're not inspired. You'd be amazed how many people think they're inspired. Chapters, verses, and all that. They were put in just to make it easier. Right. Trust me. Well, old manuscripts, they do that with all old manuscripts. So when I'm reading... Uh, the Gilgamesh epic or any of those that are ancient manuscripts, they do. They use the same method. I was saying in chapter 16, I just happened to glance, there's a pair of uh, parentheses. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so here we see we've got Jesus being mocked. Jesus being mocked. And these guys are uh, pretty brutal. Remember when I started this, I said, what were they looking for? Superman. <laughs> yeah, they were looking for a Superman. Uh, let me see how this says. A Superman exhibition of power. Remember, they wanted Jesus, Pilate wanted Jesus to perform miracles in front of him. Prove it. I'll let you go. I'll let you off the hook. Jesus is like, no. This is what they wanted. They wanted him to come down off the cross. You claim... And have done all these great miracles? Prove it. Show it to us. Come down off the cross. They're mocking him. If you really are this son of God, save yourself. The problem is, is that these people weren't there in the garden when he submitted himself to the Father, was he? If the Father wanted to bring him down off the cross, it would happen. But Jesus himself had submitted to the plan, submitted to the authority. He could not bring himself down off the cross. Now, a lot of people will say, well, it's because of his love for us. <coughs> I don't believe that. Our love is not what kept him on the cross. His submission to the Father, his perfect connection to God and being in relationship with him 
is what kept him there. That he would see what the Father wanted done, done. Whether it was creation all the way back at the beginning, when they decided what they were going to do and he spoke it into being, to staying on the cross. They argue for the fact that he saved others, that he healed others, that he did all this stuff for other people, but he would do nothing for himself. Because self is what got us in trouble in the first place, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is not self-sacrifice. This is obedience. Because that's what the problem was in the garden, wasn't it? God said what? Don't eat eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did we do? We ate. We ate. Why did we want to eat it? We wanted to be smart and be like God. We wanted to be smart and be like God, yeah. I mean, Scripture makes that clear. That was the whole thing going on there. Here it is. Jesus submitting to the Father. This is why I said it's not love that keeps him there. He is showing us what we were supposed to do in the first place. Submit to the Father. Submit to God himself. Obey. We hate that word as athletes, don't we? (laughs) We don't like the word obedience. We like to yell it at our children. But Jesus is yelling it at us, isn't he? Obey. Talking about, I'm an adult, I make my own decisions, right? That's what got us into the trouble in the first place. And it wasn't just Eve, yeah, she didn't obey. He was just as bad, he decided he didn't want to obey either. He was the coward and let her eat it first. (laughs) But they're calling for him to save himself, but he isn't, he doesn't need to save himself, does he? No. See, this is this is where our self-centeredness comes into play. We want to save ourselves. Jesus told us if we wanted to save ourselves, we were supposed to die die to self or lose your life. He who loses his life will find it. See, we don't like all that, do we? Because we don't want to give up ourself. Ourselves. We like being selves. (laughs) We don't want to be Christ's. We don't want to be Jesus's. Want to be me? And he stays. So then they they tug on those emotional strings, right? How can you save others? How can you have done this? They're calling into question all that he has done. How could you save other people if you can't save yourself? You didn't really raise Lazarus from the dead. It was some sort of trick, because you can't do this for yourself. You couldn't have healed all those people, cast out all those demons. Remember, what was their argument earlier as we've studied through Mark? What was their argument? That he was doing it by the power of Beelzebub. You didn't do it yourself. You did it with the demons. You're in league with them. You can't save yourself. They've left you your friends, they're not helping you anymore. You can't save yourself. You don't have any power in and of yourself. This is Jesus. What did they watch for three years, though? Right. That's what I want to know. 
But this is Jesus. You have no in, in power in and of yourself. He was the one who called creation into being. This is what they're doing. They're mocking him. They're, they're just decimating him emotionally over this. What could you possibly have done? You didn't do any of it. It was all the demons that you had working with you. And now they've left you and you're hanging here and you're going to die because you're a nobody and a nothing. <coughs> the problem is, is Jesus remembers being glorified, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Just a few weeks before the Mount of Transfiguration, his father bellowed from the heavens, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He knows and he stays. What is so amazing to me is not that he chooses to stay on the cross because it was a choice. At any moment, he could have made any of it end because we're told that his continued thoughts keep everything spinning in the universe. Nothing exists that he doesn't want to exist. Those nails causing all the pain, they don't exist anymore. He could have just made them go away, right? <clears throat> the hard wood that digging into his back, it never existed. That tree was never planted. We never, he never gave any growth to that particular species. Could have done it. He doesn't. He chooses to stay there. That's all amazing, but not so much. Not so much as the fact that the Father, and I want you to think on this because we don't see this side. The Father allows this to happen. He is sitting in perfection in heaven, watching everything take place. He's in the throne room. We have it described by Daniel, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah. This throne room is teeming with legions of willing angels. Cherubim, seraphim, any one of whom would change places in an instant with the glorified son hanging on that cross. And God sits there and does nothing allows it as planned to happen. The fact that he can hold back his anger, his fury, his righteous justice, and witness this is mind-blowing. Because if it was any one of us watching our child be punished in such a manner, unjustly at that, Well, the wrath would be unbearable to the individual that was doing it. Go ahead. If Jesus actually came down from the cross at that point, what would have happened? Would that been the end of everything? That would be my guess. There certainly would be no salvation at that point. You, you destroyed it. But he would be out of the will of the Father. I have no idea. Because they have never not been well, in unison. They called the legion of angels to come down. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. At, at any moment. But that's what's so phenomenal. They were in such perfect union over this that the Father sits and bears 
the mockery by mere men that he crafted out of dust. And he accepts it. Do we understand what the cost was for our to the payment of our sin? We, we, we tend to glance it over and we get all emotional and we talk about the pain and the suffering and the nails and the wood and the crown of thorns and all that. But this is, this is beyond even that because they are attacking the very relationship that is held up to us as the highest calling and standard of man. Because we go all the way back to Genesis and God looks at Adam and says, it is not good for you to be alone. You need somebody in your life. And here's the one person in God's life that he's in perfect union with. And he's allowing this to transpire and take place. Because he was then separated from Jesus, right? And yes. And there was a time where they... We, 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 we know that the Father turns away from the Son because of becoming sin for us. He can't bear that until the Son is cleansed of those sins. And I don't know how long, but even for a moment, I'm sure it would seem like an eternity to a being of that that was in such perfect nature. We don't understand how all of that works. It's beyond our understanding, but it does. Comments, questions? Go ahead. I find this interesting because if Jesus hadn't done that, that's why we think we could have done better? No. What we found out that Jesus, no matter what, he was fully man, but he was fully God. So, and that's why the, it says that the Father became flesh. Yeah. And if that wouldn't have happened, we certainly wouldn't have had no hope. And that's why Jesus stayed on that cross because he knew that it was, when he said it is finished, Yep. It was finished. It, it's beyond our comprehension. We just can't grasp it. Um, or the reasoning why. I mean, we can talk about the love of God and all that, but why would anybody go through that much trouble? And when you study through the whole Testament, <clears throat> the plan started in the garden, and he took all those thousands of years manipulating all the events to bring it to this moment when he could have just started all over. We don't understand. And people can talk about how it's all love. Yes, love is a part of it, but it is not the only thing. We don't know. We don't understand the war in heaven. We don't understand the plan of the future that's going to be there and our part to play into it and why this needed to happen in the manner that it did. There's so much more. Such, it's such a bigger thing that I don't even try to comprehend it because I can't. Everybody thinks it's so simple. Well, salvation is simple. But what God is doing is beyond that. And we're just swept up in it and are so small when this thing goes beyond generation after generation after generation because every one of you is sitting in here because people that have gone before you did what they did. You would not have lived here. You would not have met this person or that person. If these things, And it's all got to work out just right. That's what makes it so amazing. And these simple critics, secular critics out there just want to look at this and go, oh, this was nothing. 
It's not that important. Just change one little iota in this and it all falls apart. And no, no, because it's so much more than just a piece of text. All right, let's move along because we're going to run out of time here. Mark chapter 15, 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, whatever. <laughs> Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, truly, this man was the son of God. All right. Some interesting things that happened in here. Not the least being the fact that Jesus is dead. Much debate and argument has gone into this, whether he really died or whether he just passed out or whatever. The fact of the matter is, is that this was performed by some of the most brutal individuals who ever have lived on the face of this earth, the Roman centurion. They knew death. They dealt in death. And in many cases, they reveled in it. They enjoyed death. That's what made the Roman army so brutal. They could deal death like nobody else could. Hence, they rolled across Europe and most of the Middle East and conquered it. If this guy says that he's dead, there is probably not a more foremost authority on death than a Roman centurion. Mm -hmm. He's dead. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> Secondly, three hours of darkness. Much speculation goes into this, but I want to point out a solar eclipse lasts minutes. This was no solar eclipse. Three hours of darkness. The only time the world has experienced this is when? Right there. Nope. Nope. Nighttime. Nighttime. <laughs> the world experienced it when God decided to try and get the Israelites oh. out of Egypt. Yeah. And it went on for days, days and days of darkness, and in a very select area. We don't know how far this darkness went. Scripture doesn't tell us. Was it the whole world was plunged into darkness for three hours? Was it just Jerusalem plunged into darkness for three hours? And why? Have you ever pondered that? Why darkness for three hours? My guess and it's just my guess, my opinion. God couldn't bear to look at his, upon his son. 
naked on a cross. And he plunged the world into darkness so no one would look upon his humi humility, being humbled, that he would hang there and suffer in private instead of being the spectacle, given the way they mocked him for the first three hours. I don't wonder if that's not why the darkness was absolute for three hours. But I don't know. We see that he calls out. Now everybody thinks he's calling for Elijah, but he's calling for the Father. That ought to tell us something. The suffering that he must have endured, that he would call in the manner that he was calling in the garden for the cup to pass, he's now hanging on that cup. And he's still crying out. I thought all, all the time I always thought that that's what scared Jesus the most. Because he was never separated from the Father. Mm -hmm. And he knew he would be separated for a time from the Father. Yeah. To be forsaken. When he had spent eternity past in perfect communion. He calls out. And they still mock him. Thirdly, we see the temple curtain split. The temple has always been a symbol. It was a metaphor for us in our relationship with God. And this curtain which was the pride of the priesthood because it separated them from God, the holiness, and all of that. This curtain, only once a year could you pass beyond it as the high priest in order to offer the blood on the uh, judgment seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, and now, with his death, it rips top to bottom. Opening our access to God. That which had divided us from him in the garden is now removed. We could once again have the relationship, the open relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. The fact that they could walk together in the garden was now accessible to us because of the sacrifice of the Son. And then we see the first person to acknowledge who Jesus was after his death a lowly Roman centurion. Not a Jewish high priest. Not one of the elite of Jerusalem. Not one of the rich. Not even a Jew. A Roman soldier recognizes for the first time this is the Son of God. How impressive is that? Who could have predicted that? If I was writing a religion, I would have had the high priest doing it. If I was making this up, it would have been the high priest who would have fallen to his knees, bawling his eyes out at the cross and confessing. 
Maybe not even just the high priest. Maybe the whole Sanhedrin would show up, but they don't. It's a Jewish centurion, one of the ones who crucified him. One of those who killed him. Maybe the very guy who stuck him with a spear. I don't know. But one of those that was there recognizes and acknowledges this was the Son of God. How amazing is that? <laughs> Giving all of us the hope. Comment, question. You think we'll meet that centurion in heaven? Ah, yeah, really. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to know who he was. This is the simplest of the four versions of the crucifixion. But it is beyond profound in what it tells and teaches us. So a couple of things that we can take with us out of this. First, we can know with confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. The fact that he didn't come off the cross, the fact that he didn't give in, that he stayed and did that which needed to be done. He is the Messiah. Secondly, we can be assured that Jesus has the power to save. There is no doubt or question about it. Because he chose not to save himself. And finally, we are forgiven because Jesus died on that cross. That's our basis in life. Let's pray. Father, we are awed by your willingness to submit. Awed by your willingness to come in the first place. We stand in awe of you and all that you did. Lord, help us, help us to live the life that is submitted to you and pleasing to you because of what you've done. Enable us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.